We're going to start a brand new series today talking about a gentleman that is, uh, has become really important in my heart as I've been studying about him recently. And his name was Noah. Noah. Most people are pretty familiar with the name Noah, right? We got one in the room, not the same guy. But he made a huge splash in the world haha, when God called on him to build an ark. You guys remember? It's a very popular story. It's very popular with kids because we've made plastic toys that kids can play with. There's arcs and all the little animals that kids get to enjoy. And kids have been doing that a long time, at least here in the United States, and learn about this guy Noah, and God called on him to build a giant boat, an ark, right? And God called on him to do that because God had decided that the world had just gotten so evil that he wanted to start over. That's what it really was. But God saw in this guy named Noah a good heart. And so God supplied a way for him and his family and some animals of the world to gather into this giant boat and safely ride out a rainstorm that literally flooded the entire earth. A horrific event. Forty days of rain. A storm. And it's kind of romantic to imagine Noah and his family huddled together in their little family quarters. Maybe there's a, a fire going and Perhaps there's a giraffe head leaning over into the room with them, and we think about that, and I think about the horrific smell that no doubt those guys endured. It's a cute story. But there came a point when the rain stopped, and God had the ark stop, and it rested in a particular place, and God opened the door, and they walked out onto dry land. They walked out into a new earth, and the world started over. Incredible. Incredible. And it's a good story. But but it's far more than just a story about an eccentric man. The Bible teaches us he preached about 120 years about it. He stood toe-to-toe with a world that we probably ignored him. The Bible isn't specific about all that he endured, but I believe it's obvious that he was ridiculed. I believe it's obvious that he endured a lot of persecution because he talked about and was building a boat and telling them about something that had never happened before, a flood. There are non-biblical texts that mention Noah, historical writings such as those by Josephus and others about how he did preach to the world, and he shared this story, this warning that God was tired and God was going to destroy the earth, and nobody listened. So I'm praying for us as we dive into this wonderful biblical account that we can squeeze out wonderful truth to help our lives because the story is not a fable. It's not a myth. It's a truth. And God allowed it to happen for a purpose And it's there for us to learn from today. I believe in it. The Bible tells us that Noah's grandfather, about ten times removed, was Adam. So this is way, way back in the beginning of biblical history. And he lived before Abraham. Also, if you can think about that, it's amazing. And his story is found in Genesis, Genesis 5, especially 6 through 10. 
way early in the Bible. And it sets up like this. After the Garden of Eden experience, when humankind began to sin, it took about ten generations for God to think through what he was really going to do about it. And what began in the Garden of Eden plummeted out of control. Humankind learned how to be sinful, and they became very, very good at it. It got so bad and so corrupt that God called a do-over. I'm going to start over. It wasn't a complete rebuild of the earth and heavens. It was more specific. But Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 6 say this. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Okay, take in the Scripture. Believe the Scriptures. Try to go there in your heart and mind and imagine what God is seeing. Verse 6 says this, and it's a sobering verse. The Lord regretted. The Lord regretted that He had made human beings on the earth and His heart was deeply troubled. These two verses so far already give us a great insight into what God wanted for His creation and what God wants for you and me, okay? God wants good things for you. And the most important thing that God wants for you is for you to live a life that is not ruled by sin. That's the most important thing that God wants for you. He has a plan for that. And I'm not saying this to be judgmental or to make you feel bad this morning. It's just that God has something more wonderful in mind for us, for you, for me, than we even can imagine some days. Because I think sometimes we blissfully run through life, even with our salvation. We've got it. We're feeling pretty good about it. And as I so often say, we can forget what God has done. It's easy. That's why we have church, and that's why it's important to, to go to church. That's why it's important to be together, to remind one another, to encourage one another in what God has done. That God wants good things for you. God has designed your life to be filled with things like love and joy and peace and goodness. Many years later, God had a guy named Paul write about it in Galatians chapter 5. He could nail an idea right on the head. Galatians 5.22, he says this, He's describing this life that God dreams for every one of us. The fruit of the Spirit, I love these words, is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All the stuff that you struggled with this week, <laughs> I struggled with. Against such things, there's no law, okay? That's a free life. There's no condemnation in that. And that's God's plan for every one of us. That's what God had in mind. As those of you that have heard me preach for a while, you know that I've said before that God's desire was honestly to spend time with mankind in walks through a garden. That's what God had in mind. That was the purpose of the Garden of Eden, a place where man and God could commune. And that was God's normal for us, okay? That's what God intended. And I want you to understand this morning, none of that has changed. God's love for you and His love for His creation has not moved an inch, not a bit. This whole story and God's reaction to this is not a, a, a question mark for you to feel in your heart about whether or not God loves for you. 
It's about what God wants. But sin stole that wonderful dream. God wants you to be close to Him. And by the time Noah came along, ten generations later, the world had bought in to sin. Sin, honestly, brought its own flood around the world. The sin that came to be is also described by Paul in Galatians chapter 5, same chapter, verse 19, however. He talks about what sin looks like. Just in case you're wondering, the acts of the flesh are obvious. That's what Paul said. You can see it everywhere. It's right in front of you. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Alephi says, and the like. Because there's all kinds of stuff that you can see in this world. And I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a dilemma. One verse, he's talking about what God wants for us. And in the other verse, he talks about the condition of the world. That's what God was talking about when he said that he saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. It was an obsession with sin. And it got to God. You know how things in life will sort of be okay, and then one day something gets to you? You, you say things like, I am fed up. I am sick and tired. It's okay to be sick or tired, but if you're sick and tired, somebody's in trouble. My mother would say that. I am sick and tired. You're not doing what I want you to do. And I go, oh, my God, capital punishment is about to happen. Because she was sick and tired. And then she was fed up. And as Beth has often said to Alex, I'm down to my last nerve, and you're on it. I think your mother passed that on to you. <laughs> so it's a generational thing. God was down to his last nerve about this thing. And it, it, it's an insightful set of scriptures. And it got to God. And it caused a heartache for God. The scripture says in this verse, his heart was deeply troubled. He's wounded. Imagine a God that is troubled. Imagine a God that is wounded by the wickedness that, that people could be consumed by evil. Consumed by it. And day in and day out, they learned to be evil and they tried to find ways to sin more and it broke God's heart. Guys, you got to remember this about God. He has a heart. I don't know if it's exactly like yours and mine, but the Bible describes him as having something that inside of him can be touched, can be moved, and in this case, can even be hurt. I think we should let that settle in today and, and let that ruminate, marinate a bit, that God feels things. He does. And so God wanted a do-over, and he said, I'm going to wipe, verse 7, I'm going to wipe from the face of the earth the human race. And with them, the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I made them. Sobering words. Sobering to take it in. But that's where God was, because God feels, God thinks, God loves. God moves in our lives. I love my relationship with the Lord. 
I don't know that it's better than yours or worse than yours, but I know for me, in my heart at least, it's better than ever. It's rich. And there's a thing with God that I sense. It's not that I can sense all of his feelings. I'm not that good. But I know he's with me. It took me years to come to believe that God was not always mad at me. I grew up in a culture that taught that, that you're always on the verge of slipping into hell. It's like you're walking on a banana peel and you're going to slide right into hell any minute. That sort of was the tone of the preaching when I was a kid in my family. And it took me a long time to accept that, wait a minute, he saved me from sin, Christ's death was enough, and he loves me, he loves me. He loves me even when I'm bad. Now, my mother taught me that. She said, you did wrong, but I still love you some. My mom was good in words like that. She made sure that I knew that she loved me. But it took me a long time to really believe that God loved me. I felt like I had to be good. I had to be perfect. And the minute I would incline a wrong direction, I would think that that love of God was shattered, that God no longer cared. It's just not true. Even though I know this, and and if I'm going to be a good preacher, I have to say it. God hates sin. He hates what it does to us. He doesn't hate you. He hates what sin does in our hearts, how it moves in our lives. And that's why God sent His Son Jesus to rescue us from this mess. Jesus is our only hope in breaking that curse of sin, guys. That's why he sent him. And Jesus is enough to change everything in our lives. We change from Galatians 5 and 19 to Galatians 5 and 20. It's it's amazing. Yet even though that's happened to you, you see it around you. You see this crazy world. You see it. It's unholy and it's heart-wrenching. If you watch the news, if you watch shows like 2020 or Dateline, You'll watch these people who've committed horrific crimes, and you will go, how in the world could someone do that? It'll blow your mind. It'll blow your mind to hear someone say things. It's horrible things, crimes that are committed by seemingly normal people. And here's what we do. We say they must be crazy, okay? Only crazy person would do that. I'm here to tell you it's not true. You don't have to be crazy to commit horrible crimes. Criminologists and psychologists who work with those who commit crimes have deemed the worst of the worst in many cases as being perfectly sane. But they choose evil. See, the problem is not sanity. The problem is not your childhood, even though that can implicate things. The problem is sin. That's a preacher for you. I'll tell you the truth. It's about Sin. Often the neighbors will comment on a person who gets arrested for doing horrible things like burying 500 bodies in their backyard. There was a story I think I talked about recently about this little old lady who who ran a boarding house. And if you went to live in her boarding house, you weren't coming out alive. She was poisoning all the people that went to her boarding house. And she would bury them in the backyard. She was the sweetest little old lady. D, stand up. She looked just like... (laughs) I'm telling you, watch her. If you go to her house for dinner, you may never come out. That's what was happening. Because of sin, okay? 
Sin can grab you and it can do things to you, a good person, and you'll start going, I can't believe I'm doing these things. That's the nature of this thing called sin. It just moves and it breathes and it's unholy and it leaves us heart-wrenched. Neighbors would say about the murderer, he's such a quiet guy, always had a nice yard. I really liked him. It shocks us. Guys, we got to pray for families who are being affected by shootings. The people in Buffalo, they need our prayers. That's a horrible day. Sin. And I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm not trying to say anything about you. I'm trying to say this, that while we live in this kind of world, we should never get used to it. It bothers God. It bothers us. We need Jesus. We need to be close to him. We need to bring Jesus close in our hearts. For those of you who are watching online today, I mean it for you too. Bring him close to you. Pray to him. Worship him. Serve him. That makes the difference in this world. And this world needs us as believers, as Christians, as the church, to step up probably like never before. So up to now, in this story of Noah, things are pretty gloomy. God is upset. God is heartbroken. He's going to start over. Wickedness has thrown a huge kink in the plan of God, right? That's what happens. But verse 8 changes the mood, and I love this verse so much. Verse 8 says, NIV, but Noah was different. Let that sink in too. God liked what he saw in Noah. Okay? I love that. God can like what he sees in you. You can be different. D, you don't have to kill people to come to your house. You can be different. And God can look at your life and go, I like that. I like that. Noah was different. God liked what he saw in Noah. Here's what God recorded about this man. Genesis 6 verse 9 says, This is the account of Noah's family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. I love it. He was righteous, he was blameless, and he was faithful. And the three descriptions are used by the inspiration of God to leave a record for all of humankind to read. It even says, this is the account. This is the official record of Noah. The record is that he chose to honor God with his life. And that can be pretty difficult to be different in a culture that is going the wrong way. I mean, you can believe the Bible or not. I believe it. I do. I believe the miracles. I believe the stories. Even the things that sometimes seem abs absurd. There's a lot of stuff in this world that happens that's absurd. I can certainly believe God's word. Noah was in a world that was choosing to go a different way. And to be different in that world had to be difficult for him. In 1993, I think it was, I forget, there was an NCAA uh, cross-country championship race. And some of you have heard the story. It's really a, a great story. There was like 128, 129 runners that were involved. And they were supposed to trek across the country. And at a weird point in the race, a runner went the wrong way. And so as this runner went the wrong way, everybody started following him, okay? But there was one guy named Mike, Mike Del Cavo was his name. He was running in the race, and he saw that the guy had made an error. 
And so he took off the right way. And he started yelling and screaming. He said, hey, guys, that's the wrong way. That's the wrong way. Follow me. He only got four out of the 129 people to follow him. The, 120, the 125 others went the wrong way. And he went the right way with just four other people. He tried, but out of all those people, he's, he could only get four people to go with him. And people actually laughed at him for going the right way. And it caused an incredible controversy about the race and about whether or not he did the right thing. And it got real stupid because sin was involved. But it just goes to show how easy it is to just do what everybody else is doing. How easy it is. Well, he's doing it. I'll just run with him. Have you ever led people the wrong way in a crowd? I'll lead. I'll do so. If people are trying to figure out where to go, I'll go to the front and I'll go, let's go over here. If it's wrong, it feels really bad. Wait, it's not here. But if it's right and you can help people get somewhere, it, it causes me to understand this. Most people are followers. But when it comes to your faith, you can't be a follower. you got to follow Christ, not other people, because they may be going the wrong way. So going the right way when everyone is going the wrong way is not always easy. So don't expect it to be. And while the Bible isn't clear about it, as I said, you know they made huge fun of this guy as they saw the giant boat rising up in the neighborhood. The HOA got mad, probably demanded that he have a permit, and he wasn't going to get one. But the Bible says he believed in God. He believed in God more than the opinions of other people. Our verse says plainly this, Noah walked with God. Noah walked faithfully, but Noah walked with God. It says a ton about what's possible in my life. It means that it's possible for you and me to do the same thing, especially with Jesus. And I was was thinking about this and how this idea of walking with someone is really easy to grasp. I, I was in Walmart the other day, and I saw two buddies. They looked like, I guess, high school seniors about to graduate. They were side by side. And they were laughing and talking and cruising through Walmart, probably getting snacks from their friends. And I eavesdropped, as I often do. And they were using the same language to make fun of other people and their friends. And their facial expressions were the same. They were of two different races, but it was amazing. Their smiles were similar, and they were just laughing and enjoying their friendship and walking side by side. I kind of envied them. I said, they're just having a great day. It's great to be young, great to be able to make fun of other people, and you don't, get, you don't lose your job. It was so cool. And it was like almost as if they didn't recognize that there were other people in the store. That's walking with someone. You're, you're, you're engaged. In this case, they're side by side. They're close proximity, connected in a comfort conversation, experiencing life together, knowing that your friend gets what you get. That's a great friendship. That's walking with someone. Noah paid attention to God, and God paid attention to Noah. Noah paid attention to God's truth about things, and he liked it. He engaged with God. Guys, I'm telling you, there's something to this singing that we do. There's something to singing to God songs of praise and and, and worship. There's really something about that that engages your heart as you connect and you walk with God. Remember, walking with God in the garden is something I think God wanted for all of us. And so Noah goes down in history for taking the right turn. 
Now, first of all, can you imagine the Bible recording your life story? I mean, in the first place, I shudder. But if it did happen, what would be your summary statement, you think? What would the world say? How would that read? Think about the things you've set your mind to accomplish or the things that you try to be. The Bible wrote his down. The King James Version uh, says it a little differently. Same verse that says this that I read earlier. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. It's another way of saying the same thing, but it spins toward a comparison, so to speak, of Noah against his generation. A generation is, generally speaking, the lifespan of a group of people living at the same time, roughly, right? And in this generation, in his world, at the time, he was the one that God saw that was righteousness and had righteousness in his life, was faithful and was blameless. Now listen to that. The world was so bad that God wanted to destroy it, and he decided to, but there was this one guy. So I have to ask you the question. I've asked this to you many times in my preaching, but I'm going to ask you again this morning. Can one person make a difference in this world? If the Bible is true, one person can make a difference. Now think about that. One person in a family... One son, one dad, one mom can change everything. One church, maybe. Think about that for just a moment and how God searches this world. It's amazing to me. And Noah, when he comes to us generationally, like I said, about ten generations away from the first human, First Chronicles chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, give us that chronology a little bit. And I'm not going to name all those people because I'll just sound silly. But Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, on it goes all the way down to Noah. This is his Ancestry.com chart right before our eyes. But a careful study of it is very interesting to me. Okay, If you read those words, it goes from Adam to Seth. Okay, Left out are two very famous children of Adam, right? You guys know where I'm going. You heard of Cain and Abel? Preach about them all the time. We teach our kids about Cain and Abel all the time. We don't talk a lot about Seth, who was also a child of Adam. We talk about Cain and Abel because it's a much more interesting story. It's more of a 2020 or a dateline kind of a story. And it's from Seth that the lineage of Jesus comes, by the way. But Cain is the one, if you go back in your scripture, who's the one who became jealous at a moment in time and killed his brother Abel. This is the son of Adam and Eve, became jealous and killed his brother. So Abel, the good guy, didn't have children, right? Obviously. Cain became a murderer, a liar, and he became a wanderer. Now this is a colossal development to me. It's a confusing way for the earth to begin. And we want sometimes to point the blame at Adam and Eve for their actions, how they got the sin ball rolling, and it bit them, so to speak, right there in their own family. That's harsh. Because get this, Cain is the first human being born on earth. He's also the first murderer. That's stunning. 
He became cursed by God, and the Bible says he was marked by God and sent away. Now, the mark is unclear, but there was a sign on his life. Maybe it was a literal mark. I don't know. Whatever it was, there was a cloud that hung over his life going forward. And it reminded the world that evil begets evil, that bad decisions can bring more bad decisions. And it was a remembrance. And so he's left out of this record of generations for Noah and this wonderful what I call a recreation story, and even the lineage of Jesus. And he's kind of the first person to have a generational curse as he's left out of this generation that describes even who Noah was. See, guys, because we have Jesus in our lives, we live in a time of grace. It's wonderful. But there's still something significant about how sinful lives can create can pass on the curse of sinful lives and the people around them. So I just want to call you to that sobriety. It matters who you are. It matters that this faith that you've elected with Christ that lives in you, it matters that you take that and you embrace that. And you say, yes, this is who I am. Cain literally goes down in history as an example of unrighteousness. Noah is called righteous, Cain is not. Verse John 3 and 12 is a stunning verse, something to be written for all the ages to read. And you're looking at it, and it says right off the top, read it with me, do not be like Cain. Wow. I don't want people to say, hey, whatever you do, don't be like Rob. Think about that. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. So that's the story left behind but forever by the life of Cain. It literally says, don't be like him. This is in the Bible. It's not a John Grissom novel. You know, It's not just somebody giving advice. It's in the Bible. Literally, the Bible says, don't be like Cain. Don't be like him. Adam and Eve sinned, but Cain taught us how far we can go with sin. He taught us how to be flippant and rebellious before God, how to be jealous, and his actions were evil, especially compared to his brothers Abel. And it all happened around an offering. For those of you that know the story, you should go read it. Cain brought his work as a farmer, some crops, and Abel brought an offering with God. As a rancher, he bought the meat offering, and that's what the Lord wanted. And God blessed Abel's offering, and he didn't bless Cain's offering because he saw his heart. He didn't bring the offering. So in just a, it's just a few words in the Bible, but it's a big deal. That, that the heart, being obedient, that's the element of what blesses God. And Cain became bitterly angry, not just a little angry. He became really angry through a temper tantrum. He didn't apologize to God, didn't apologize to a brother. There's no lesson learned. He lashed out at his brother. He complained to God then about the punishment as God sent him away. And he's an example of how sin is born in a rebellious attitude, okay? An attitude that knows better than God and that will not accept responsibility. Now, it's interesting to me that the way we handle sin in our life is very simple. We can learn it even from this story. It would have changed history if Cain had done this. You know how sin is handled in your life, guys? Really? A simple, heartfelt apology. You just repent. 
That's the difference. We've all sinned. We've all acted the fool. We've all been Cain-like. But the difference is, for Cain, could have been if he got on his knees before God and said, I see it. I don't want to be that. God, forgive me. Brother, forgive me. History would have been changed. He didn't show any of that. It, it messed up his life. It changes your life, however. Forgive me of my sin. That's it. So Genesis 4.16 says, Cain went from the presence of the Lord. He lived in the land of Nod, which is east of Eden. And he goes to live really in, Eden, uh, in exile in a place called Nod, a place of wandering, east of Eden. You've even heard of a book by John Steinbeck that's written with this story in mind, really. And it's called East of Eden. It's about corruption. And so light shines on a new birth in the family of Adam, and that is Seth. And he's kind of a replacement, some scholars say, for Abel. And the story of God is passed on for him. Genesis 4 and 26 says, Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. And here's what it says. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. It's a wonderful statement about how there was a, a strain of righteousness rising up again. And so it's after Seth and his Seth's lineage that men start to call on the name of God. And maybe that's where Noah got it from. Cain's mentioned in Genesis 4, but after Seth is born, really, the Scriptures skip over him, Old Testament at least. So to me, that's an important backstory to the story of Noah and what happens if you're going to understand it. And it's the moral of, of the why the world is where it is when Noah comes along. Noah comes along in, in a world where sin has exploded. There's been this stampede of sin. The world walked in the ways of Cain, so to speak. But Noah decided to be different. And that's important. The impact of one person willing to go the right way. Noah kept walking with God. So guys, here's the deal. The flood was real. That Flood stood for a world that had already been flooded by evil. Wickedness had blanketed the earth like a flood. It was time for a do-over. It was time for God to regenerate His creation. It was time for God to establish a new covenant with mankind. And so you may get caught up in the bad news of the sin and the flood, but the bad news is not the real story. Sin is not the real story. It's the warning the story is in the salvation that came to those people in the boat. And that's the wonderful dilemma. And, and, and that sin is why Jesus came so that all of us could join in that boat. That ark represents Christ's answer for all of that. The Bible teaches us very clearly you want to be the ones that get in the boat. And humankind was born again. Do you see the symbolism? Started over. So you can be the start over for your family. You can be the start over student at the high school. You can be the start over dad in a long line of bad dads in your family. It's a very relevant story for us today as we witness a world that is vastly different than we want it to be. It's frightening. And it's in our role as a church to continue to walk closely to God because here's what Matthew 24 says about the last days, as they're called, the days when Christ is going to return. It says this, Matthew 24, 37. 
Jesus, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. So the warning is there that the Noah story is not over. The Savior is different. And the Scripture promises us, Scripture promises, so I'm just going to tell you the truth, the world is not going to get better. Take it in. It's not getting better. It gets better for individuals. It gets better for families. It gets better for churches. We don't have to be a church that follows Jesus closely. We can fake it. We can show up and sing a few songs, go to have dinner, move on, live wretched lives. Any of y'all live in wretched lives? We don't, we don't have to, we don't have to walk closely with God. God will let us walk away from Him. Or we can choose to be like Noah. I want to be. Noah's life teaches us to walk with God in a world that doesn't. That's what you and I have to be ready for. And so that's the warning today as we begin this series. I hope it's wonderful. I stacked up all my notes at the end, probably not good form. For those of you that like to write them down, you've probably already written some in because I've given you some hints. The first one is this. Don't be like Cain. Remember that phrase. Number two, get in the boat. Everybody gets to go that wants to go this time. Everybody that wants to know Jesus, get to be in the ark. It sounds simple, but God's salvation is the key to life's success. Find Jesus. Get in the ark. It'll protect you from the flood that is sin. The righteousness you need is in Jesus. Get in Jesus. Number three, walk with God. Walk with Him. He's your strength. Listen to Him with your heart. He's the one that gives you power, not just your commitment. It's that relationship. Jesus taught us that the most important commandment in life is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Jesus added to that. He said the second great commandment is to love your neighbors yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. Okay? That's what Scripture says. So that leads me to this next note. That is this. Let your life be seen by others. He built the boat right in front of the world. The record of his life is a matter of historical truth. Here's the thing, guys. Your life is leaving a trail. There's a footprint. Your life is making history. You don't do this to be showy. That's not what it's about. But faith is something you share because He will come again and He will come to a world that is evil and He will take those that know Him. Period. That's what the Bible tells us. We're going to be in or out of the ark. That's the story. So you can make history by being righteous. And here's the deal. You want to love others? If you love others, really, like, like yourself, you know what that means? That's not just about taking them bread, being sweet to them. That's part of it, maybe. But you love others by showing them how to get in the boat. You love others by showing them how to walk with God. That's the greatest gift you can give another person. In fact, the best way to love someone is to show them 
how to go to heaven. Hands down. Is there anything more important than that? You tell me. That's the ultimate expression of loving your neighbor as yourself is to say, the boat's over here. Follow me to the boat. Would you bow your heads? Lord Jesus, this is a sobering story. And God, I thank you for this story. I thank you for this historical truth. And Lord, as you try to teach us,